Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, I want to be a link in a chain, but a chain where I can still be me, because it's SST 169, the Tar Babies No Contest. We like the Tar Babies a ton on this show. They're cool. They're weird. We haven't had them on since SST 101, the fried milk episode. And Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, Tony Jarvis is on the show. Very cool to have Tony on. This is very much a Tony record, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, Tony really leaves his mark. The The Tar Babies are a different Tar Babies because of Tony on this record. So very cool. Before we get into it, Brent, why don't you hit me with some spiels? Did you roll the spiel wheel? Am I first? No, I rolled the wheel of spiels. Oh. And you are first. Okay. Not the spiel wheel. Well... <laughs> This week, Ryan, I didn't listen to as much older stuff as I as I normally did. I'm still trying to catch up on some of the recommends and the comp zone stuff, but uh, I got three new records this week, brand new. Oh, dude, my spiel is my last 10. Okay. So, so cool. We'll have lots to listen to. Hit it. Okay, I got the new Pat Todd and the Rank Outsiders. It's called There's Pretty Things in Palookaville. Oh it's, yeah, my buddy, my buddy Graham. Um, I was hanging out with him yesterday. You know, several meters apart, we're having a coffee, and he said he was uh, totally down with that new record. Yeah, it's their sixth. It's on Hound God. Uh, Pat always delivers, uh, and, and a new recording by Pat is, of course, cause for celebration and nonstop repeat listens in my house. Uh, and honestly, I really needed a new Pat Todd record right now. So thanks, Pat, for for doing what you do. And another artist that I've been following for years, Greg Stackhouse Prevost, his third solo record. Greg is, uh, or was the singer for the Chesterfield Kings. Ah, right. So he has a new one called Songs for These Times. Have you heard any of his other two? I've never heard his solo stuff, only the Chesterfield Kings. And I haven't heard that much Chesterfield Kings, funnily enough, Mm -hmm. only their... Uh, their double LP, their surf record is probably the one I know the best, which is probably their least well-regarded. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, he's been doing this Stonesy Blues thing for a while now, and uh, since the breakup of the Chesterfield Kings anyways, and I just love it. This one's a bit different. There's no rhythm section on it. Um, it's just him and this guy, Alex Patrick. Uh, he plays slide, and it's kind of live in the studio. It's really great kind of beggar's banquet era stones hmm. it's good and ryan the new tomahawk which is of course dude that that's number one on my last 10 yeah. but hit it well it's of course for people who don't know i'm sure everyone listening to this does it's Dwayne dennison of the jesus lizard mike Patton, uh john stanier of helmet on drums and trevor dunn of a billion bands uh it's their 20th anniversary as a band it's their first album in eight years it's called tonic immobility and it does not disappoint. I'd say it's their best record for me anyways. It is right up there with their first one and Mitt Goss yep. for sure yep. for me. And, uh, you know, if I'm not going to have a new Faith No More or a new Jesus Lizard record, this will do the trick. Yeah, it's great. Okay, Ryan. Um, so f- further on with my spieling about Dr. Dream Records, a band on Dr. Dream that you need to check out. This is a big time recommend for you if you don't know this band because you'll love them okay they are called don't mean maybe oh yeah got it you got it got it it's good i agree okay the main guy is mark andrea 
guitar and vocals. So I've been talking to Mark and here's some stuff he sent me about the band and about uh, their history and about Dr. Dream. And you'll hear references to Neil Blender and O throughout this. Otis spiel that he period? Gave. Yeah. Nice. Otis, Bar- Otis Bartholomew, who was in uh, a bunch of bands like uh, All of Lawn and uh, Fluff. Fluff, Fluff yep. man, yeah. I knew O before I knew those bands because he was always credited in Thrasher Magazine for yeah. f- being a skate photographer. And Neil Blender was, of course, a skater when I was a kid, always goofing around in Powell videos with Lance Mountain and stuff. He did the artwork for uh, the, the first record, live sample. So I, And O is credited as, I think, photography on that record. So I asked Mark about that as well, like how, how they got hooked up with Neil Blender and O. So here's what Mark told me. We started in drummer Ron Sloan's dad's office off their garage in Fullerton, California, summer of 1987. John Pang on bass got us all together and worked up some covers and a few originals for our first gig at Big John's in October 87. Our third gig at Bogart's in Long Beach was pretty significant because Neil and O were there as well. It was a Wednesday night, so not too crowded, but they both came right up to the stage and were really into it. I didn't really know Neil at all, but we hung out after the show and I got a tape of his band Worked World and we started playing some gigs together. O was around a lot and we all became good friends. Ron and Pang left the band in summer of 88 to pursue other endeavors. I got Jeff Fairbanks and John Hawthorne on bass to replace them as I was in other bands with those guys and our second gig with the new lineup was opening for Firehose. One night in fall of 88, O called me up and said, Bitch, what are you doing? Get the band down here to the Celebrity Theater in Anaheim. They need another band to open up for GBH. (laughs) (laughs) That's a weird bill. Yeah. I called Jeff and John. We hopped in their car, and in 30 minutes, we went right on stage. We got pelted with nickels and other coins, cigarette butts, but I think it went really well. Golden Voice was stoked, and that led to a gig in Hollywood opening for Dinosaur Jr. Neil really loved that band, and this was now in March of 89. Neil and O rode to the dinosaur gig with me. Some people really liked us, but some thought we were two Minutemen. After the gig, Jay Maskus came up to the car and talked to, to me and Neil. He and Neil became friends, and O is still good friends with Jay. We recorded a 7-inch EP before that gig that got some attention, and then eventually signed with Dr. Dream in 1990. We made live sample in a week or so and did a little tour. Jeff left the band and Ron Sloan came back. We did another U.S. tour and met Jack and Dino playing with Skinyard and asked him if he would record our next record, which he did. Always great gigs with Firehose, fun to talk with Watt as him as he was my hero, along with D. Boone and George. We recorded our second record, Real Good Life, in Seattle and we were really happy with it. We toured and played local gigs in San Francisco and L.A., Orange County, but we never really took off. We regrouped in 96 while we were all living in the San Francisco Bay Area and made another record called Wait. That I don't think has ever come out, Ryan. Not that I'm aware of. Only those two uh, that I have. And I have one single, Buff and Tan. I've got that. Yeah. He says, I was a big fan of SST and we always wanted to be on that label. You can tell listening to them. They're very, you know... 
very heavily influenced by Miniman and Firehose. And that's why I got into them and, and I like them a lot. Yeah. Few articles from the LA Times that he sent me, one both by Mike Boehm, one from July 6th, 1989. Uh, he says, True to its name, the Orange County rock band Don't Mean Maybe doesn't equivocate about its sources and inspirations. The Minutemen to me were a great band, said Mark Andrea, Don't Mean Maybe's guitarist and founder. Seeing them play made me think, I want to play. They had so much life. They were so positive when so much of the hardcore scene at the time was so negative. The Minutemen's music just made me feel alive. Nice. Uh, and here's another one from August 31st, 91. This is a time of transition for two of Orange County's best alternative rock bands, Don't Mean Maybe and Eli Riddle, formerly of Eggplant. Eggplant is another band that was on Dr. Dream. Sharing a bill Thursday night at Bogarts, both seem to be thriving on the challenge of change. The revamp Don't Mean Maybe has changed entirely. It still deploys frequent shifts in tempo and dynamics and goes for episodic song structures built on Mark Andrea's changeable, cleanly etched guitar riffs. But the music is more consistently melodic. Andrea is increasingly inclined to sing instead of holler, and most of the songs unfold in less hyperkinetic fashion than on the band's two previous releases. He's talking about the EP and the, the live sample album from 90. So, yeah, as you mentioned, they have the, the single from 89, then another single on Dr. Dream in 1990. Live sample came out on Dr. Dream in, in 1990 also, and then the one I would recommend is their last full-length Real Good Life, Dr. Dream 1991. Yep. Very uh, Meat Puppets, Minutemen, Firehose. Mark kind of reminds me of uh, Evan Dando a little bit, vocally. He's got a bit of a baritone in his voice, kind of like Evan Dando. Right. I don't know. I really like that band, and uh, I'm not surprised that you, you do too, Ryan. Yeah, man. They're good. That's what I have, so thanks to Mark for answering my questions, and... For everyone out there, dig up some Don't Mean Maybe. Uh, both of those records, the two full lengths, are both on Spotify. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, you don't see it around that much. I don't know how or why I I found out about them. I'm pretty sure I read some sort of article about, like, you know, under the influence of Firehose and Minuteman or something, and it was talking about bands that were, were influenced or... Or an article along the lines of, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda been on SST. Yeah. Um, I've always read those articles when I came across them. I'm sure that's where I found them. And then they're not very common, like in physical copy up here in Canada anyways. Don't mean maybe. I'm not surprised. Yeah. All right. Hit me with your last 10, Ryan. Okay. So it's it's less of a last 10 now. And again, it's not my top 10. It's my last 10. But since you are last nine, (laughs) it's my last nine now because Tomahawk was actually going to be on there. uh, Totally digging that one. Multiple repeated listens of that one lately. I think it's just awesome. Patton is Patton and Dwayne Dennison really stick out on that record. They're at their best. It's great. Yeah. So here are the, my, my remaining nine. Then I picked up the, the gang of four box set 77 to 81 on Matador I have most of these tunes already, but uh, I couldn't resist. It's just such an amazing package. Bruce Liker-esque packaging and book. 
as well. Very cool looking. Is it a compilation of their singles or a bo- like a box set of seven inches? So it comes with Entertainment and Solid Gold. And then uh, a 12-inch of their early singles. Not all of them, but you know a fair amount of their early singles. A live record that's been heavily bootlegged. It also comes with a cassette of demos. And then with a uh, a very cool book and some pins and other ephemera, but uh, it's a it's really well put together. It kind of reminds me of that Joe Strummer zero zero one box set. You know, it's it's not like completely new, right. but um, it's just such a nice package. You you got to get it. Speaking of Joe, I picked up his Assembly double LP that came out on Dark Horse Records. That of course is. George Harrison's record label relaunched by his son in 2020. The Assembly Double LP is it's kind of a best of Joe Strummer with some unreleased live tracks on it, but it even goes back to like the Love Kills soundtrack. So, I mean, I pretty much had all of this too. <laughs> but but you know, a good Joe Strummer comp is going to find a place in my house and in my shelf and it's going to get many listens for for years to come so there i also picked up two roland s howard records with lydia lunch now i i was you know totally inspired by having harry on the show and the the these immortal souls episode that we had a few uh weeks back I had definitely slept on these records because I'm not a huge Lydia Lunch fan, to be completely honest, but these records are great. Shotgun Wedding. I have the uh, the Bang Records 2019 reissue, and then also a live album that Bang put out in 2017 called Siberia. They're both great, and, you know, I don't know, maybe I've slept too long on Lydia, period, but Roland and Lydia is a wicked combo. These records are awesome. Agreed. I also finally received in the mail, and special shout out to um, all of the uh, UPS, Express Post, mailmen out there, all the union guys that are delivering all my records over the last year and a bit. Thanks a bunch, (laughs) by the way. I finally got the Down by Law Lonely Town record, 2021 Kung Fu Records. If you like Down by Law, if you like Dave Smalley, you will like this. It's, It's pretty solid. Also received... From uh, Scott Reynolds, I got his solo record, Chihuahua and Buffalo, his new one on non-existent records recorded with Bill Stevenson at the Blasting Room. And then also his 2014 solo album, Stupid World, no label on that one. Uh, Chihuahua and Buffalo, I like way better. Uh, Just the solo singing and uh, acoustic nylon string guitar, Scott Reynolds, love it. It's perfect for Around the House. It's great. Also got the latest Melvins working with God 2021, another one on Ipecac, like the Tomahawk. This is a Mike and the Melvins version of the Melvins. So with Mike Dillard on drums and then Dale is playing bass. It's like all Melvins in the last few years. It's okay. It's got you like half the record is killer. Half the record is kind of meh. They also, don't do themselves any favors in my mind by starting off the album with a terrible Beach Boys song. It's too bad. I don't know. The Melvins were so consistent for so long. I it probably their last eight records, you take all the good songs off them, you'd have one killer Melvins record. 
Mm, more than one, but it, but it's, they've just been a little too prolific, I guess, you know, maybe, but I mean, I'd rather have a so-so Melvin's record than no Melvin's record. That's true. Put, put it that way. Um, and then finally, my 10th one is, uh, the new album by Nonagon called They Birds 2021 controlled burn records. This, this is basically their most recent release of any length since their 2013 12-inch The Last Hydronaut. Great, noisy, grungy, post-hardcore. Uh, all the Nonagon records are good. This one is no exception. All of my last 10 are recommends, except, of course, for those that you already have. But in particular, this Nonagon record, Brent, you should check that one out. On it. Are you Nonagon it? I'm gone. Check out Nonagon. <laughs> Please stop. Please stop. All right, man. Do you want to get into this record? Heck yeah. History lesson, part one. So we've got Tony on the, the episode, which is awesome. I mean, a great story. Yet another just amazing SST band story to come in the interview, Brant. Where yeah. should we start, though, with Tar Babies for those who... Uh, maybe are getting into them for the first time on the show or like us haven't really listened to them for 60 some odd episodes. Well, I'll just give a quick recap. So the tar babies were from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, they dropped their early hardcore sound after their two self-titled EPs, which were 1983's face the music and 85's respect your nightmares, uh, as well as shedding original vocalist, Jeremy Davies. The trio of Dan Bitney on drums and vocals, Robin Davies on bass and vocals, and Bucky Pope on guitar and vocals adopted a more of a funky, arty sound and released Fried Milk on SST in 1987. And you can check that episode out as episode 101, where we interviewed Bucky Pope. Yeah. Get a little bit more of a, a history lesson on Tar Babies. In 1988, they beefed up the punk-funk fusion by adding horn player Tony Jarvis. The all-music biography uh, written by Steve Huey even says they flirted with Washington, D.C.-style go-go on this record. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Hmm. This one was recorded at AMS Studio in Orange County, California, October 12th through 18th, 87. Isn't that where Ross Michael and HR did the tracks? Is that the same studio? Might have been. From last episode? I thought it was, was. I thought it was AMS. I'll have to yeah. check that. Engineered by Mike Sessa. Uh, the only other credit I could find for Mike on Discogs anyways was Jack Brewer's, uh, the Jack Brewer band, Rockin' Ethereal album, which I thought was interesting. Another interesting one about this one, and I think kind of speaks to the direction the band was going in, is all songs are credited to Tar Babies mm. as a group instead of individual credits like on Fried Milk because 95% of that record is credited to Bucky Pope. Yeah. Also, this album only has 10 songs on it, and Fried Milk has 19. So this one is definitely a little more, the songs are a little more stretched out and maybe a little more focused, for me anyways. That's what I have, though. Let's kick it over to Tony, and he can expand on where the Tar Babies were at during this period. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Tony Jarvis. Tony, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're talking about the Tar Babies, specifically the No Contest record. Now, I'm wondering, are you from Madison? I am from Madison, born and raised. 
Tar Babies came out of the punk scene. Were you a part of that scene or were you... The reason I'm asking is because you bring a real, you know, jazz flavor to the to the band. So I'm wondering, obviously, you were somewhat trained in jazz music. Is is that where you were coming from? Or did you know these guys from, like, I want to say the punk scene? But you tell me, I mean, how did it all happen? I mean, uh, I mean, first, okay, first of all, I'm just going to go on a, can I go on a little bit of a, of a rant or a digression? Of course, of course. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm fascinated to have you ask me these questions because they're like, nobody's ever asked me these questions. You know what I mean? My, 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 I'm super psyched to talk about it. And I'm like, does anybody care? But I, I hope somebody cares. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm super, I'm super psyched that you care because, you know, just like anything, like th this time of, of, this time was very important in my life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know what it means to anybody else, you know, but. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's like it boils down to it goes back to like high school and, and middle school and all that. So so my relation to the Tar Babies, so Dan Bittany was like the drummer, right? Mm -hmm. And um, he went on to be in Tortoise. Like my best friends that I had my first band with in like eighth grade, like their sister, he's they're a little bit older than me. I think three years older, maybe like three grades ahead or so, something like that. So Dan Bitney was like, my first memory of him was just like this older, like, you know, this older, like high school guy on a bike that I was scared of. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's how that's, so my relation to all those guys, they were like older, older dudes. And then Bucky Pope was like this, I kept hearing this name, Bucky Pope. And, you know, in Wisconsin, uh, you know, our team is called, Buck, you know, the Badgers, Wisconsin Badgers. And the mascot is is Bucky Badger, right? Uh -huh. So, so it's like I was like, who is this Bucky guy? You know what I mean? It was just like this, and it's such a sort of a legendary sounding name, right? Bucky Pope, like For who sure. the hell? Who's named Who's named Bucky Pope? You know, but but he was anyway. So, so yeah, like my thing, you know, when I intersected with them, yeah, I was like just super into jazz. You know what I mean? I just had gotten out of high school, and yeah, my whole thing was like trying to be a jazz guy and get to New York, you know, and that was like my, my, my plan, I guess, you know, but my first intro to music, like to be, to being a musician was, you know, my best friends when I was, you know, seventh grade, Patty and Misha led with, and their parents owned like the nightclub in Madison. And the club was called Merlin's Merlin's was like where everybody played. I mean, Iggy pop, Wow. Uh, Black Flag. I mean, everybody, every, I mean, this is, we're talking about 1981 when I, right. when I was in, I was in eighth, eighth grade, I believe in 1981. So, I mean, the first show that I ever saw in my life was Gang of Four. Oh, wow. Okay. When I was 12 years old. And, and I remember it was like, you know, they, they grew up in this club. You know what I mean? We used to like hang out in this club like during the day and go in there and drink, you know, pour soda, you know, from the fountain. And it was like, whoa, we're so cool. But I remember like, okay, we're going to see this band Gang of Four. So we went to this, we went to see the, the this band Gang of Four. I'd never been to this place. And then this other, this, they were like, okay, ladies and gentlemen, you know, put your hands together for Pylon. And I was like, Pylon? I was like, I thought we were here to see Gang of Four. You know, like I, I, I was like, I had no concept of the whole, the whole thing was like foreign to me. You know, the, right. I didn't know what an opening, I didn't know anything, you know. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because when I think about the, so I have like, I feel like I have this punk thing like imprinted on me from a very early age. And that time, 
I'm looking at you. I, I'm looking at your, your your age. I can't quite age you, but um, I'm 52 years old. Are you are you my age or older or younger? I'm 45. Okay, you're younger. Okay, well then I can. I can. <laughs> so that time that was right before MTV, right? Right. So all the bands. I mean, all the you know we were we used to rehearse at Merlin's. We were we would rehearse during the day on stage at Merlin's, and we were on stage, and it would be like REM would roll in. You know what I mean? And do their sound, you know, we would have to take our stuff off so they could do their sound check for the night, you know? Wow. Um, you know, we, you know, we, we rode, we rode in the, ba- in the, in the, literally a VW uh, van. I remember getting in there with Michael Stipe and, and right, you know, driving to Wart, which is like the, the local station in Madison. And I remember thinking like, God, like, this is not a very, you know, glamorous life. <laughs> Cause they were like packed in that little van. You know what I mean? For sure. So, so I had, and honestly, like, I mean, the records that they, they had at the house, because like, I remember walking into the, to their house and, and I, I remember seeing the promo photo. So, you know, they would get all the promo records and the photos, you know, coming to the, to the house. You know, I remember seeing like a Sun Ra, like, you know, the old, those old promo photos that used to have, right? With the left, like, yep. you know, and I remember their mom being like, yeah, this guy, he says he's from, from Mars, you know? And I was like, whoa. And, and, you know, so I just, you know, Honestly, the number of bands that I didn't see kills me, you know, but I'll tell you the bands that I saw that made a big difference that I think imprinted in my, my sort of in this, I don't know, this uh, punk DNA or something like a punk DNA. The Gang of Four show blew my mind. I didn't know what it was, but it, it blew my mind. I saw Tom Verlaine. That blew my mind. Susie and the Banshees blew my mind. I saw the soundcheck of Bow Wow Wow and really wanted to see the, the gig, but like, that we couldn't get in or something went down where they wouldn't let us in that night because we were you know joan jett amazing mm-hmm. amazing amazing we were there for her sound check wow Ama- amazing there was this band called the suburbs from minneapolis yep i know, I know. Yep. yeah like they, they were like our band like they were like the they they were like they came every like seemed like they came every month or something but they were like our band like we love that band we were also super into rock uh rockabilly there was this band called the rock hats yep amazing you know amazing for, for us like just you know we went we went out to dinner with the rock cats before the show and and we were just yeah i just was spellbound you know i was just i mean i was like 12 you know what i mean i was just like i remember the road guys you know talking about or the sound guys whatever talking about like the different you know being on the ramones and you know so so i just had the other band that we saw was this band called the flesh tones mm-hmm. yep um New York you know band. and again yeah like Again, like my context was, I didn't know anything. I was just a kid, you know. I was just trying to like. We were just hoping that the bands would leave like some roaches in the ashtray so we could smoke them the next day. Like that's what we were. That's what we, you know. But but you know this stuff like, and 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 I think at that time was when the Tar Babies were getting going. I think, and there was another band called the Bloody Mattresses in Madison. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another band called Mech Mench in Madison. And so, yeah, so I wasn't really, so it's weird. Like I started off my first band with my friends. Like, you know, we played like Beatles covers and Stones covers and, you know, it was more of a rock thing and, 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 and like, you know, uh, but so anyway, so then, you know, I started getting more into jazz. And then when I, when I met with the, when I got with the Tar Babies, it was literally like, I think how it went down was I was just playing on the street, you know? And I think Dan Bitney like was like, yo, you sound good or whatever. And the first thing we did was they, I think they asked me to like, they were doing some weird like soundtrack for like a student film. And they asked me to come, it was like at the university 
and like you know it was like back in the days when you know everything was on actual film and you know we went into this weird room and we just like kind of improvised and you know bucky was this i i did meet bucky like in, in the guitar store once when i was in high school and and i was i was like i was like yeah he's like hey man i was like yeah He's like, yeah, I'm into jazz. And and he started to play and his playing was just so weird. You know, like I didn't know what to make of it. I have to be honest. So like, yeah, so, so that, that's kind of my my relationship with with the punk scene. And um, so, yeah, what by the time I got into Tar Babies, I I was not in the punk scene, really. I was really into the jazz scene, mm-hmm. but I had a healthy dose of, uh, of that stuff, you know, imprinted on my DNA. Okay. What was it about jazz? Like what was what was the jazz that grabbed you? Like what? Like what to, specific music? Yeah. Like what, what what got you interested in jazz in the first place? Well, well, it was the same thing. It was like these friends of mine, like they they had this, you know. I mean, like you know, we'd be we'd be hanging out up in the attic, and you'd be like the persuasions would come over after the show and be hanging out downstairs, and they'd be partying. I mean, you know, what I mean, I mean, there's legend, you know, the amount of, I mean, there's the time that Johnny Thunders, you know, cancel. I mean, there's so many things that happened at that club at that. I mean that. That was, I mean, that was, you know what I mean? That was like all the, you know, that was the whole thing. That was The Clash. That was XDC. I mean, that was all these bands. I don't, actually, I can't say if The Clash played there, but, you know, certainly, I mean, it was just, so the music in the house, there's records in the house, you know, um, and those guys were just very sophisticated in their taste. I mean, even the fact that, like, when we started our band, they, they were into the Beatles. I mean, I was, you know, I was just like, you know, let's see. My first record that I ever bought was the Star Wars soundtrack. You know, and the second record I bought was was Kiss Love Gun. You know, and I was super into Kiss and stuff. You know, I was super into roller skating. I caught the very end of the disco thing. So yeah, when I met those guys, they were like, they were into like Jonathan Richman and you know, and and all these what I thought were pretty out there bands. You know, and even the Beatles were kind of out there for me at the time. Right. You know, it was it, so so I was exposed to their their taste and you know and and i got hip to like you know coltrane and all that stuff so yeah it was, it was really those guys man those i mean that's you know that's that's it right you, who your friends are that's kind of who that's how we learn about music you know for sure so do you recall like your first shows with the tar babies oh yeah absolutely well i i remember the <laughs> so the first time i went to see so they kind of approached me and they were like yeah man you know want to be the band and and I went and saw them and they were playing with this band, these bands called Painted Willie and Das Damen. Mm-hmm. You know these bands? Yep, for sure. Okay. Yep. Okay. I don't know. The, I don't really know these bands. Okay. But <laughs> I remember, I remember going to see the show and I wasn't really, I wasn't really that into the, the, the Painted Willie and Das Damen, but I was into the Tar Babies. I thought, you know, cause they were like kind of weird. You know what I mean? They were like, they were doing some different stuff. Um, I didn't really relate to, you know, to this day, I don't really know what Das Dominant and, and Painted Willie sound like. And I'm not saying this in any way to diss them in any way. It's just it again at, at that time, my aesthetic, you know, was like mm-hmm. I was going to connect to something a little more. I don't know what you would call it, you know, so I can't I, I don't want to speak badly about the other bands. I just remember being like they were different. You know, right. I, I could see a junction point in in what they were doing and what I was doing, which is probably why they, you know, were interested in what I was doing. So that was the first time I saw them. And then the first show we did, we got, we used to play this place called OK's Corral. And um, I, you know, I remember the first show, I feel like we would all, they would always want to do like a wacky cover, you know, those guys. 
And, and of course they weren't wacky, but they're wacky to me because I was, you know, young and, and ignorant to certain, you know, to a lot of music. And I, I remember, I feel like, I remember we did uh, the song Flashlight at one point by George Clinton. Right. Um, I remember, oh, we did um, a song by The Meters. So my first, my first recollection of the first gig was like, we did some of their tunes, or maybe I just guessed it on like a one of those covers or something along those lines. It just kind of, you know, it's weird. This whole period of time happened really fast. I was trying to put back, put the, the chronology together. I mean, I was in the band for like seven months. It was like crazy how short I was in the band and what we, I what I feel we got accomplished in that time. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay, so you recorded this in out in California at yes AMS Studio. So how did why California? Did you tour out there? to record this, this um record? okay yeah so we made the record in um i believe it was like october of 1987 mm-hmm. and and we went on a tour so we we had a ssc set up a tour for us i guess it was like a month-long tour and it, it kind of it you know when we got to la we stayed there for a week and we recorded the record mm. so like in the it was like maybe the middle of the tour and so and i i to be honest i have no idea i mean i was you know, like I said, at the time I was clueless. I didn't know what SST was. I didn't know what anything was. You know what I mean? I, I knew that I wanted to get the hell out of town and go and play some shows, you know? Right. And I had this, I remember having this, like, such a romantic idea of what touring was, you know? <laughs> like, because cause my, my whole thing was, like, from reading, like, stories of, like, the jazz men, you know? Mm-hmm. So I had this vision of, like, everywhere we'd go, like, we'd, we'd be having these jams, you know? It was, like, from a total jazz you know what I mean? Like yeah. you go to the town and then after the gig, you, you know, go jam with the other cats, you know? And, and I, and I looked for that. I mean, and I found a little bit of that, but, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I didn't know anything about the business at that point whatsoever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was, I had never been even re- been in a recording studio at that point. Do you know, do you remember where you stayed when you were recording? Did you stay at SST? We stayed with Chuck Dukowski mm. of Black Flag. Mm-hmm. If, if my memory serves and again i was clueless and you know later on when i was more hip to the whole thing i would have loved to ask him all kinds of interesting questions but i was just a, a freaked out 18 year old you know <laughs> with like these intense people you know he seemed like an intense guy to me yeah. you know now this tour out do you do you remember any of those shows like were you were you on tour by yourself or was it with another band like a package oh tour? okay it was well, it was kind of, I mean, again, this is all looking back, mm-hmm. you know, it was kind of thrown together. I mean, you know, like, like, yeah, every, every city, it was like, we'd be playing with different bands. Right. I mean, like the, the, the climax of the tour, you know, for us was like playing, you know, opening up for Firehose in LA. That was like a, you know, that, that was probably the ultimate moment for us as far as the tour went, right. you know, um, just because, you know, that band is super cool and everybody in the band was super into that band and it was like an LA thing you know what I mean so and that's like their scene right so so that was like you know but yeah it was like we played with uh Screaming Trees one time we played with this one band man I can't remember the name of this band Blast is that is that a band Blast yep and they were I think they were like kind of scary I, I you know I my 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 whole thing was like I had never played shows with like people fighting in the audience and stuff you know i was just like what the hell like we played in fort collins colorado 
which I now understand is like a, a bastion of white supremacy or something. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's true, but that that's just my, but in any case, you know, I was, again, I was just like, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was just confused, you know, the whole time, really. I mean, I, I just didn't, I didn't know what was going on, but, um, you know, I want to, if it's okay, I mean, I want to talk about like how we wrote the record, mm -hmm. if that's cool. You know, the things that I really want to talk about are like, I want to talk about the records that we listened to in the van, like the music that we were that we were listening to. Sure. And I want to talk about and how how I was exposed to different things. And I want to talk about, you know, how we made the record and how we made the record. You know, I love I love this record. You know, I, I mean, pr probably to be perfectly honest, this is probably the, my favorite thing I've done in my life musically like that. I, that's been captured, mm -hmm. you know. Like that's on record, you know, you know, and I, and the reason I love it, I think I love it so much for me. And this is, again, this is, this is just me. This is my life. You know, I don't know if anybody's even interested. I'm just sharing my like views and how I feel, you know, mm -hmm. what, for me, what's magical about it for me is it's very pure. It's pure creation. You know, it's before I was thinking about making money, right. It's before I was thinking about, the business or the industry or how you know what i mean how we fit in or do you know what i mean like mm -hmm. like and that you know I, I for me that's a very precious consciousness you know and and every person and you know every artist or musician or person i guess i think can, i hope can relate to that you know like when you're young and you you know what i mean before you knew all the bullshit of life right mm -hmm. um and so so for me what I love about the record is that, you know, we made it the way you're, I think you're supposed to make, I use the term loosely, really music, but I would say, especially rock music. When I say rock, I just mean, you know, you know, drums, bass, guitar, you know, and that is like guys, just guys or gals getting into a room, not knowing what the hell they're going to do. And just, it just kind of happens, you know? And, and what I, what I remember about the Tar Babies for, for me, what was really special and I've carried it through my whole life is, we never talked. We would walk in the rehearsal room and we would start playing. We would walk in. We would never talk. We would never say, let's do this. Let's do that. We would walk in. We'd start playing every time, every time. And, and, and that's, and that's, man, that is like, you know, at this point I've been doing this a long time and, and, and that's really something, you know? And so, so I, I love the music because for me, it, it comes out of that, that jamming spirit and that, mm -hmm. that like, because honestly, like, yeah, if we had talked about it, it would it wouldn't have worked, you know? Because when I listen back, I'm listening to like, like Bucky's playing is so out there, you know. I mean, I, I don't know if you heard it. You know, it's like it's really out there. Like a lot of stuff was really out there, but like we just it it kind of worked, you know. It was just it just so so. Anyways, so so yeah. I mean, I mean, remembering the touring, you know, the other thing about the touring was like, so we kind of like wrote the record, and then I I guess basically we wrote it, and then we just toured it, and then we recorded it, and that's the other cool thing is that like. Some of the stuff was not finished when we got to the studio. Some of it was half baked, mm -hmm. um, you know, and we we kind of like finished it in the studio. But um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the touring, it was like sometimes we'd show up at a town and we wouldn't know where we were staying. We would stay at, you know, some fan's house, you know. I mean, we were eating peanut butter, you know. It was like the, the, the it was granola and yogurt and peanut butter sandwiches. And like, I mean, I, it was like a big deal when we would like buy a meal at a restaurant, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, anyways, yeah. Well, maybe let's let's talk about the tracks, and you can tell me which ones were road tested, which ones. Just feel free to tell me anything that any recollections you have about the tracks. So, the first track is "Lay of the Law," and 
also you're credited to uh you know many different instruments on the back of this record so i think i know what you play on each one but but feel free to clarify as well well (laughs) well okay thank god i listened to the record right before we started talking I listen, so I'll do my best to remember, but um, I mean, that that song, yeah, I think that was, I think that one was pretty much, I think that was pretty much together before we went to the studio. What I love about that song is it's like, there's like this outro where I kind of like do this little, little jazz sax thing and I'm like singing really, really high and I'm like, oh, baby, mm-hmm. on an asteroid. And I go, space is the place. So I'm getting all this, like, these, like, Sun Rock quotes in. Right. And, you know, and, and it, but it's real quiet in the mix, you know. And, and like, I, I was very, I, I was very, you know, shy about it in a way. Like, I wasn't a singer. I didn't consider myself a singer at all at that point, you know. Even though, like, very early, like, seventh, eighth grade, I, I did have a band that I sang in. But at that point, I didn't think of myself as a singer. Um so yeah, that that's for me like the the coolest of that song is like I got to s- quote some some uh, some raw tunes at the end um, of the track, and you know everybody in the band was like was was down with the Sun Ra thing, you know. Yeah, you mentioned the van. Is that one of the artists you uh, could agree agree on in the van? Oh, Sun Ra. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Big big time, big time. What else? Well, in the van, it was all about. Well, okay, the big one was. Prince sign of the times mm-hmm. that was that was the big that was the big one because again right before we we got with you know i got on with you i was looking at the timing so that record was it says march to uh, march 1987 right. we went out we went out in like september of 88 so it was pretty new you know mm-hmm. and uh we were just like really into that record we listened to that record a lot a lot a lot a lot and um so yeah so we loved that we loved that record all of us really loved that record. And that was, you know, and I was super into Prince at that point. You know, Prince was like, for me, I, re- I specifically remember being in ninth grade and I was like sort of a stuck up jazz guy at the time. And, you know, not, not interested at all in what was going on. I remember kids being in this band called U2 and I was like, what, who is U2? Like, I just didn't know anything what was going on. And, but I remember this kid playing uh, 1999 on his like boombox, and I I kind of got like mad. I was like offended, or like I just I had I had I was like stuck up with my jazz thing. Uh, but when when uh, Purple Rain came out, it kind of kind of blew my mind, and um, and then I got super into Prince, and uh, you know, and also his earlier stuff from before that. So yeah, so Sign of the Times is a big one. The other uh, record, well, the record that they really liked was uh, I think it was I think it was Rain Dogs. They were super into Tom Waits, and I didn't I didn't know who the hell Tom Waits was. I didn't, I don't remember really liking it, to be honest with you. And, and, you know, it's funny with, with Tom Waits, um, for me, after I left that band, I was in another band, uh, they were really into Tom Waits. And I remember hearing Tom Waits in, in that van. And I was, I got like angry, like I got angry with, because for me at the time, with my, what I knew, it just sounded like a white guy sort of pretending to be like a, a you know what I mean? Like a Louis Armstrong, you know, right. thing. Yeah. So I, I was like, I was like offended by Tom Waits upon first hearing kind of, <laughs> but, but, you know, then when, when, uh, uh, bone machine came out, right. I was like, Whoa, wait a second, wait a second. And when I got, when I got in a bone machine, that was like, 
not at all that Louis Armstrong thing. Like not at all. He like went into a totally different direction. And I, and I kind of like connected with this like experimental side and then it like made everything else sound good to me. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It was like, yeah, totally. it was like re revisionist history. All of a sudden I went back yeah. and I list, really listened. I was like, oh shit, like rain dogs. And like, that you know, happens. but anyways, <laughs> yeah. So, so, so Tom Waits was big um, in terms of agreeing. And then, and then of course they were into like other SST thing. I had never heard of Sonic Youth. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know who the hell Sonic Youth was. So I remember in terms of the stuff from like SST that they were, so there's this band called Universal Congress of. Yep. And I, I, I related to that because that's like a little, right? A little more like the jazzy, jazzy and weird. And then there's this, what was that other band, man? There, there was a couple band, a couple SST bands that were more like jazzy and weird that I kind of, that I kind of vibed on, you know, Henry Kaiser, I think had records on SST. Yep. And he, he was a guy that I had like, you know, I'd read about in downbeat magazine, you know what I mean? Like things that I could, you know, and even like weirdos like Elliot Sharp, you know, right. Those were things that I could, you know, under, relate mm -hmm. to, you know, mm -hmm. um, the Sonic Sonic Youth. I didn't I don't really remember digging or, you know, not that I didn't didn't. Dig, I just they were super into Sonic Youth. Like right. they were all about Sonic Youth. <laughs> I didn't really get what that was about. The other band was the Minutemen. I really liked mm -hmm. that, you know, um, and, you know, so, so that I related to. I could, I could feel that right away. So, yeah. So so. Then I'll, I want to talk about some things that other things that I didn't like that I didn't understand, <laughs> which were so Bucky was Bucky would play the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. And I was just totally perplexed. Like, I didn't understand <laughs> what that was about, like at all. Like I was and it's funny. But what about Bobby Keys? You couldn't even. No, 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 no. No, but but okay. Again, hear me out. So, looking back, okay. So again, I was 18 years old. I mean, I literally, and you know, you know, as you're young, you you get into jazz. That's like your, you know. So, I, I didn't have an appreciation for. Well, let me put it like this. Later in life, I saw the movie Sympathy for the Devil. You know the movie, yeah, right? Yeah, I know it. I, you know, listen, I don't know who your audience, I don't know who, who listens to your podcast. So I hope I don't come off. you know, I'm not trying to be what you call it. You know, uh, I'm just going to explain what it is. You know, it's like, it's basically a, a movie, a documentary by Louis Small, I believe, uh, you know, documenting the making of that right. album. Yeah. And then there's these weird like vignettes in the middle of it. Like I don't, that I didn't really understand these political, mm -hmm. any case. So in that, so they show them, you know, writing the, you know, working on sympathy for the devil. And it, it sounds horrible at the beginning. Like they, they're, they, they're, they're like, I oh, play a little bit of samba, Charlie, you know, and he's like playing this and they're just, they, they just sound like they're terrible musicians. Like they really, they really do. They really do. And at least that's how I experienced it. And then they just keep messing around. They're sitting on the floor and they're like kind of hanging and they're like, you know, they show like, you know, he's like, you know, Keith is playing the bass and, and they're like playing bongos and they're just messing around. And then, then they bring in these conga players and they start speeding it up. And like, it just, I think it's the four days that they, they worked on that. And by the end, it's just like this magical piece of music, you know? And it's like, and the reason I bring this up is because, you know, for me going, you know, again, this is, you know, 10 years later that I got hip to that. Right. It, it, it was like, Oh, that's what we were doing when we made the, when we wrote the record in the, in the, in the, <laughs> You know, in the meat locker, you know, that that way of like you you sound bad. You, you you don't worry about sounding bad at the beginning. You just do your thing. And I think something better comes out of it. 
I think the reason the Stones are such a great band, you know, is that they're not like studio guy. You know what I mean? Like cats who can just walk in and like nail it. You know, yeah. like cats walk in and nail it, and it sounds quote unquote perfect, but it doesn't have anything magical or special yeah. necessarily. Well, they're artists, right? Yeah. So yeah. so so, I bring that back to like again, like okay, so Bucky, you know, that was his, I guess, his foundation, like the the Stones, and you know, and uh, and again, another artist who I've gone back and adore. You know, at this point, adore the Rolling Stones, you know, and then, of course, I wasn't even hip to like, I didn't know what the Mick Taylor thing. I didn't get hip to that until like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, like really getting hip to the Mick Taylor thing. And like, what's that all about? You know, so, um, yeah. And the Beach Boys, I still I have to be honest, I'm still a little confused by. But but I guess, you know, I love that. You know, I guess, again, that's just that was his that was his, you know, like jazz was to me. You know, maybe the, I guess that's what, what kind of hit him hardest, you know, mm-hmm. as a young guy, you know. Uh, so the next track on here is called Loop. Lupe. 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 Okay. Yeah. Sounds like there's maybe some some overdubs going on with the horns. <laughs> Wait, let me let me think. Sounds the one that goes. <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds of. Yeah, I mean that's you know the funny thing again. Like I had never been in a studio. Like I didn't know. You know, I just brought a bunch of crap. I just brought like my clarinet, my flute, my, I borrowed like an alto sax. You know, I didn't even really play alto sax. I borrowed one. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't even like, I didn't even like even have an electric guitar really. I I borrowed like Dan, Dan had a nice like old like Les Paul. And I, I remember he sort of reluctantly let me borrow it. I just, I didn't know better. I was just like, let me just th- throw a bunch of stuff on here, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I listen back, I listened to, it, to the whole record today and, um, there's some stuff that I did that I like, and there's some stuff I did that I don't like so much, you know, um, that's probably overkill to be honest. But, um, but yeah, that, that song was like one of those weird. Yeah. Like, I don't know where Bucky gets, got his ideas, man. Cause he definitely has his own, he has his own sound, you know, yeah. definitely has his own sound. Yeah. Sure. You can tell there's some Hendrix in, influence in there for sure. At yep. least in my ear. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And on no. the tone as well, for sure. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the next track, Link in the Chain. It sounds like maybe like you left some room for jamming when you perform these songs live. Yeah, well, Link in the Chain, so that's me. That's me singing, right? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's like, it's an extended jam at the end, you know? And um, I, I had, you know, I hadn't even, I had never even like written a song, like finished a song before in, in my, at that point. I, I, I was just like, okay, I want to, come up with something so i came up with this riff i was and i came up with link in a chain like the the singing of it the kind of the main thing in the shower you know and i was like okay and try this and then i tortured myself trying to write a second part you know and just you know and brought it to the band and the band kind of caught on and and then i wrote this kind of like it's kind of like grunge riff that I, i actually quite like kind of this underpinning grunge thing and then the and then that's when the kind of this jam starts and it gets like kind of heavy mm-hmm. and i'm and i'm doing all this like uh i don't know i guess noodling in a way but yeah i i, I mean listen i i i really like that song mm-hmm. you know yeah, again like too. for me you know it's like it's very pure you know i didn't i didn't i didn't consider myself a singer i think i did pretty good sometimes it you know i you know i'm a little uh you know self-conscious but um but yeah no i mean i i I really, I really like that. I really like that tune. Uh, the next track is just kind of a one-minute interlude. Actualizing is that you playing piano? 
Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, that's me playing the piano. Yeah, that's just like a weird one that Bucky came up with. Very, you know, his own magical harmony, you know. I, th- I feel like that's what, that's what, oh, that's what it goes like, bam, 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 that one. Yeah, I feel like that's one that we kind of wrote in the studio, I think. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was more like a riff, you know, mm-hmm. that we kind of fleshed out in the studio. It was like a little interlude. Clean Living. I hear two guitars on that one. Is one of them you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that one's, that one, that's, yeah, that's like Super Hendrix vibe, right? The the intro, the guitar, the guitar sounds great on that song. Um, great tone. Yeah, I mean, I remember every tune we would do, like, some tunes didn't feel like they should have sax on them, you know what I mean? And that was one of them, you know? It was like, it was felt like a guitar tune, you know? So yeah, I'm doing like a kind of a, like a high little sort of octave thing, I guess, right? Um, but yeah, that's all, that's all Bucky. That's all Bucky doing his thing. And there's like a weird, weird parts that's like, I mean, when you listen back, I'm going to listen. I'm like, it's, it's like advanced harmony. You know, it's, it's not. (laughs) All these songs have some twists and turns in them for sure. There's a lot going on in some of these songs. It's, it's pretty cool. Now the B side of this record, it seems like sequencing wise, some choices maybe were made. It seems way more, well, it's got more instrumental instrumentals on it for sure. Okay. It seems a bit more jazzy. I'm wondering if that was a, a decision that was made consciously or. You know, I have, I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I was just, I wasn't part of any of that stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just like, I was just like amazed that we, it came out on CD. You know, we were like, <laughs> CDs were, CDs were new. You know what I mean? At that point, like literally it was like, oh my God, it's on a CD. You know, um, I remember going to the store in Chicago and be like, oh my God, it's on a CD. Um, what is the first uh, track on that catch my fall? Yeah. All right. So, and that's right. So, yeah. So, you know, I listened to the record today. I want to say that I think catch, I think, I think the baddest ass song on the record is catch my fall. And I think catch my fall is, 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 is badass. Yeah. It's pretty, I'm talking, I'm talking about this, this, I, 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 you know, uh, I I hope I don't come off, you know, I, I, when I say it's badass, I, you know, I, I'm not really talking about myself. I'm talking about the piece of music. It's so long ago. I mean, it's, it's I made this, we made this thing 34 years ago. Yeah. Well, hey, so. you're allowed to be proud of something you created. <laughs> yeah. And this was, I'm sure, a pretty magical time in your life. You're 18 years old. You're on tour. You're making your first record. All that stuff totally matters. And you're not the first person we've had on this show who, <laughs> you know, uh, this was a really uh, important time of their life. Yeah, I mean, when I hear the the opening of the tune, it's like this this like devilish, atotal, you know what I mean, like the devil's tone or something. Mm-hmm. The guitar and and it's well the other the, the, okay this is like a story, you know. I I, was, I did think of like what could I sh- what could I share, you know, like a story. So this tune, we played our last show before we went to L.A. and I'm I'm thinking I, I can't remember the route, but I believe that would have been Salt Lake Salt Lake City like. Think that makes sense and i left my sax i i we packed the van and i left my sax and i, I had a really nice saxophone that i really i really liked we got to la and we're like oh shit the saxophone's not here <laughs> luckily the band and maybe it was fort collins uh robin uh says it's fort collins so I, anyways uh, luckily the club like found it you know i just like left it behind but we got to la and we had to start recording and so 
I didn't have my sacks. And uh, so they rented a sack. I was like the first, you know, stress of the, of the situation. <laughs> um, they rented a sacks for me and it was like, you know, saxes are very, you know, there's a huge difference between like a professional one and like a student one. And right. you can't rent a really good one. It's right. not, nobody rents them. They're very expensive. So I had a kind of a crappy sax and, and like, especially my mouthpiece, you know, it was also very personal. It was just like crappy, you know, and I had a hard time playing it. And that tune I know is that sax. I can hear it. Mm. Um, but I, I kind of listen back. I kind of dig it. Like I kind of like squeak a little bit every now and then or squawk. And it's got this like dark, like demonic, tone you know mm -hmm. and again like i think it's cool you know what i mean it's like i played this janky ass sax you know <laughs> sometimes it's about what's what works for the for the recording too though yeah i love i love I, when i listen back to that i'm i'm like yeah i kind of wish we had like 10 of those you know Cause that that thing is it's wicked yeah the next track wisdom drill i hear a bit of a Minutemen vibe maybe on that one especially the drumming a bit of a longer track with some twists and turns again seems like maybe this is one you would have jammed out live that was like again that's all you know i guess the, the two tunes that i i wrote you know were link in a chain and this one hmm. uh you know this melody came to me i guess i hear it kind of like a little bit of like a thelonious monk kind of melody you know again i had hardly written any tunes so i was just like trying to come up with something to like add to the record and um yeah like it was kind of a, I mean you know it's funny like one of my friends was hearing it today and he was like, Oh, it sounds like King Sunny a day or so, you know, like it's kind of got this, like, like, I don't know, Latin, you know, again, you got to remember, like, we're just like these idiots from Madison. You know what I mean? Like, what do we know? You know, but like we, you know, like they, they try to, you know, add something kind of jazzy kind of, I don't know what you want to call it to it. And, um, and Bucky came up with this weird little chiming kind of guitar. That's, that that's really sweet you know especially looking back i really really dig it and when i was listening to that today i love you know it goes into this uh this kind of like funk thing at the end and it's it's a straight ripoff from uh controversy by prince mm -hmm. um you know i love the drum beat what i loved about prince you know it's still do to this day is his basic beat is like a very very straight beat it's just boom ba boom ba boom but it's not boom, 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 you know, he does all that stuff, but he's got like one beat that's very straight. And if you listen to Dan play on that tune, it's like very, very straight. And when I listen to that now, I think that, I think that's, I'm into it. I mean, you know, it's like, it's, it's derivative, but not in an embarrassing way for me. I, I really, I really, I really dig it. Yeah. I think Prince was a drummer too. Was he not? Oh yes. He, yeah. sure, he sure did. Yeah. Did he play on those records? Oh yeah. 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 The song that I love, my favorite, you know, my favorite, my favorite all-time like pop song is like "I Want to Be Your Lover," mm -hmm. and that that's you know, oh, you know the song, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, um, I remember being like really young. I remember being, when I, being on the roller rink, you know, like '79, and like that song was just a song, and I I didn't even know it was Prince until like ten years later. I was I thought it was some lady, you know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the next track, "Cure It All." Love the ending on that one. Oh, ba ba da ba da ba da ba da ba da. Yeah, that that song is that's another one. I, you know, so if I was to rent, you know say the songs that I think are really good, you know, yeah. like there's some songs I don't like as much as others. All right, I'll be honest. Um, I, I would put this up there as one of the better of the tracks, on um, the more well conceived. You know that and that was that was very you know strongly and well conceived by Bucky. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. I love that song. Yeah, the ending the ending is cool. 
I had all kinds of horns on there and um yeah yeah the other thing that i you know this is just a musical thing i don't know if you know maybe only musical geeks will be into this but um you know with with the band live it was hard to cut through you know what i mean a saxophone with yeah they were pretty loud i mean i you know um and so they it was hard to to know what to do to just literally be heard you know and so i figured out that if i played on the upbeats you know like there's no way to compete there's no way to be heard like in the middle of the mix, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. a lot of my stuff has been like, eh, uh, 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 I would I play the upbeats because it would kind of like pop through. So right. I, I listened I listen back to the record and that was figured out live. I remember a lot of that stuff I figured out live because, and that kind of came through the record. I, I really went heavy on the upbeats. Did you play older Tar Baby songs live? Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We played, we played, yeah, we played some songs from Fried Milk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some great great songs from that from that uh from that record. There's one called The Storm is Ending or something. There's this one like there's some really good songs we play. There's one song that Dan Dan sang. Um yeah, we played a bunch of we we had to we had to make a whole set. We didn't have enough music from for, you know. Right. And you're yeah. you're mainly playing sax over top of those songs? Yeah, I, it was the same. Like, you know, some I played sax, some I played guitar, you know. Right. Um, yeah, we, we learned, you know, I learned all that stuff and the, you know, we, we rehearsed for the tour and, um, so yeah, we had like, like some of those songs from that record and then some new ones and then we had some that weren't done. And I, I don't, you know, I don't think we, I don't think we ever, no, we never played on stage. We never played like half, t- we, we played tunes that we knew, right. like, you know, Link in a Chain, we, we, we knew that we might've, we might've added sections to it in the studio, but, um, we never, we never like just improvised on stage if that makes sense yep you know okay the next track is blood onion and i'm assuming that's a flute you're you're playing on that one uh, i play a lot of sax i play flute yeah, that's a cool one i listened to that today that's for me that's like i don't want to say classic rock it's not classic rock it's like uh when i say classic rock i mean more like little richard or something it's got like a kind of a old old rock and roll vibe you know mm-hmm. i don't know how to say it it's uh yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty dope. It's like these weird lines that, again, like, what I love about the Tar Babies, you know, is that I don't think they sound like anybody else. You know, um, there's influences. You mm-hmm. know, I, I wouldn't have come up with that stuff. That's that's Bucky all the way. Real time. I hear some samples in that song. What what's that? <laughs> so yeah, so that was Robin's thing. Like he, you know, again, and like. I was like, we, you know, I had no concept of what he was like. He was like, we're going to take some recordings from the television and, you know, and, and he, you know, and so we went, I, we were in the studio and like, we just like turned on cable TV and he just found like random, there's some like Japanese lady talking in there mm-hmm. and then some other stuff. And then he had me like read a poem. I, it's, it's me like reciting a poem. Okay. And again, for me, that was just like, I didn't know what, he, I mean, he he's a, a good deal he may be six years older than me i guess he was like coming out of, maybe he knew about brian eno and stuff like that I, which again i didn't know anything about or i guess he probably maybe he knew more about hip-hop or i don't know what but again for me that was like i had no idea what he was talking about you know but again listening back i'm like i really dig that too and i mean i feel like well, i wish you know i wish we would have worked on it a little bit more looking back but uh, it's a cool direction, you know. It, it sounds a little bit like unfinished business, but you know, really cool. Like what he was, what we were trying to do, you know. Because at the time, you know, 1980, 
1987 sampling was like a you know kind of a new thing do you know who bob wasserman is he gets a a thank you on the record <laughs> he was our he was our sound man oh okay yeah he, he he toured with us um he toured with us and he was our he was our sound man now the cover art ron taylor do you know who ron is was he like a friend of the band yeah so he he also did the the the, the fried milk right he was i didn't really know him i mean when we were on the on tour when we got to new york he was living in new york at the time and i think i feel like he was had been like an art student in madison maybe Mm -hmm. and i don't know if he was i don't know if he was from new york and went to madison and then went back to new york or or what but yeah he was like this this black artist that which was kind of rare in madison uh would have been you know again i didn't meet him i didn't have any relationship with him in madison but i think those guys had had worked with him and his stuff, he he made. I don't know how he made it. He made it with like he took film and he it burnt. It looks like it's burnt or something. Mm -hmm. But he had his own like vibe because I don't know. You know, both records have kind of a similar. Um, For sure. And also, there's a record called "Face the Music" that also has, um, uh, or "Fear of Music." Was was what's the other record called? Oh, the so. the pre-fried milk one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That also has the same like crazy, you know, dement demonic looking images. Mm -hmm. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Craig Campbell does some doodles on the record. Do you know who Craig is? I, I do. So I went to high school with Craig. Ah. Uh, yeah, Craig Campbell, you know, early punk rock guy who went to shows and, you know, hardcore shows, etc. cetera. And um, an, interesting, an interesting fellow, interesting fellow. The photo on the back was done by SST photographer Naomi Peterson. I'm assuming that was done when you were out in L.A. for the recording of the album? Yes, that was done. I was. I'm wearing a golden lamay. No, no, go, I'm wearing a gold lamay beret. I'm wearing a gold. Let me say it again. I'm wearing a golden beret, <laughs> which I guess is some kind of nod to Sun Ra or something. Yeah, for sure. I was wearing a golden beret. Yeah, again, I remember being like intimidated by her. <laughs> In what way? I just remember, you know, she was really gorgeous, and she and she. She just, you know, she was like, you could just tell she was a person that had been around, you know, I mean, she was like, I, I, I imagine she had photographed all kinds of people, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so for me, she, I, she just gave off this vibe. You know, Chuck Dukowski was the same. Like, they, they had a vibe of, like, people that had done stuff. Right, know? I understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like... Okay, so you mentioned you were, did you say you were in the band for seven months total, roughly? I was trying to figure it out. So let's see. Yeah, it all happened really fast. Like I got in a band, I want to say the end of the summer or during the summer, let's say July. I feel like, man, I feel like it was like two or two or three months before we went on the road. But what happened was, right, be, this is, you know, sad and I'm sad about, I, I guess I'm sad about it. It's like I, right before we went on the road, I got into another band hmm. and the other band was a band that made money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know what I mean? Like they were, they were a band from Milwaukee and I had seen the band and I, had I actually really, I, I, I remember seeing the band and being like, well, this is a really good band, you know? And, um, they had two sax players in the band and I was like, I saw them open up for this guy, Robert Cray. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was super, I was like, whoa, that's, that's really cool. And, um, and then, you know, I had gone and seen them again and somebody introduced me to them and they called me and they needed a new sax player. And I had met with them and stuff. And I went and sat in with them and had a, like a really great show with them. I just sat in. They they were making a living, you know what I mean? And um, and they played original music. 
was more in like a kind of roots rootsy there was this band called Paul Seabar and the Milwaukeeans. Okay. And and you know, and it, it was it was bittersweet because like, you know, I I, I kind of knew I was leaving the band when I got back from the tour, to be honest, you know. It was like but again, it was like at the time it was like, you know, I, I had to, you know what I mean? I was like, I had to do something. You know what I mean? I was like I was in Madison, I was trying to like get to New York, you know what I mean? I was I had a full on like I'm going to be a musician. You know what I mean? So I I took the opportunity, you know, and I have to say that I, I don't know that staying in the Madison and the Tar Babies was was the right move. It, it, I don't necessarily think that's the case. But again, with everything that I've done in my life, I often look back with some regret in the sense of, as we started off, that like it was never quite the same. You know, and nothing was nothing was quite the same after that in terms of because that was the first decision I made. Not that I wasn't into that other band, but you know, I really was thinking of my career. I was really, th- you know, and 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 uh, nothing was ever quite the same. So, so that's my shout out to to like the Tar Babies, you know, that like what it represents for me. And, you know, like, you know, it's like I I've never really gotten to talk about this too much. Yeah. You know, like in fact, in fact, you know, I called, uh, you know, before before we did this, you know, Robin, uh, you know, who's the bass player in the Tar Babies. You know, I called him and I was, you know, I got very, I get very emotional talking about it because, you know, it, it it literally is my favorite thing I've ever done. Yeah. Like, I love this record. When you start adding commerce into things, you know, it kind of takes the, I don't know, maybe takes the innocence out of it a little bit. You know, you know, what I want to say, you know, from the perspective of like, you know, all the band, I, I feel that the bands that we all love or most of the bands that we all love in any genre, you know, it's a, it's, it takes a tremendous amount of bravery to to have a lot on the line, you know, you know, to have a lot on the line, like to like if you do something and it's successful, if it's pure and it's successful and then to follow up with it, but have it be pure again. It's really hard. You know, I'm not even saying I've ever done that. I don't think I don't think I've ever created anything that's this is just be for me you know, like that was commercially that I was was pure and commercially successful. I don't think I've ever done that. I but when I think about what it takes to i think the artists we love we love them because they they can do that they they you know they they get to that next level right where they have to perform at a high level and turn out product and it is product right Mm -hmm. but 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 they're still able to you know what i mean go into their soul and not worry about it you know be truthful yeah it takes a tremendous amount of um courage you know and it's it's a lot easier you know you know when when i was in mad you know when you're in madison and you, you know you live at your mom's and you know it's it's that's one thing, but you know, when you're out there, you got to make a living. It's a whole nother thing. On that subject, you made it to New York. I know because I, you're in New York right now, and I'm talking to you. What about the the music part? So what what did you do after Tar Babies? What did I do after? Well, wait, let me get my make sure my sound is together here. So yeah, I joined this other band in Milwaukee for a couple of years, and. Uh, you know, we played all the time. We played, you know, it was like a working band. You know, we play every weekend, you know, around the circuit in the Midwest. And and I was, you know, really, really shedding, you know, to, to, to my plan was to get to New York, you know. And um, and then I, I started having some real problems with my arms. I got tendonitis really bad in my arms. And then this, you know, this is probably the age of 21. Mm. So I actually stopped playing. I stopped playing. And it was a very, it was a very difficult time. But then in that, in that time, uh, I had seen Taj Mahal perform solo and i was like oh that's cool and i got this instinct to like start like playing acoustic you know solo and that's what i saw him do and so i kind of started playing my guitar more and 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 got into this idea of being a singer songwriter 
you know, more of that in that vibe. And then uh, eventually I just moved to New York, you know, I, went to, I, I visited New York and I got some gigs there and, um, you know, I, I knew the guys from the Ninny factory, you know, cause they were, they were, uh, you know, from, they're from Milwaukee okay. and, uh, you know, I hit them up and I had a couple friends that moved out there and, and I just kind of went out there in 1993 and, and for the next five years, I, 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 you know, my identity was completely trying to be like a singer, you know, and, and, and do like the, I guess I want to say the pop thing, I guess, you know, but like I played in all these places like Shanae and, you know, I was around in the, like the Jeff Buckley kind of time and, and, right and scene and um and you know i i you know i never achieved a tremendous success but you know i i i toured i toured a bunch i used to play colleges all around the country you know i got a demo deal with blue note records um you know i got a publishing deal you know i kind of did the typical uh 90s uh music industry dance you know <laughs> maybe some people don't know what that is but there back in the 90s there's a lot you know the the record industry actually had the money and they spent a lot of it on a lot of things. And um, so, you know, I benefited from that. And also just kind of like, it just kind of didn't quite happen for me. You know what I mean? Um, I kind of had a freak out and just kind of like, so, you know, my career is, and again, this goes back to like the tar babies, like my career has been very up and down. Like I've had periods where I was really, really active and then like did nothing. Like that's been my whole life, you know? And, and during that time, I didn't play sax at all. I had no identity in New York as a sax player, but I got really, my, my idol in New York was, uh, was Mark Rebo, the guitarist. Do you know who Mark Rebo is? I, yep. Yep. I yeah. know him Mark, uh, from working with John Zorn and. Exactly. So he was like my, you know, I, I, when I got to New York, I lived, you know, like a block from him. Like that scene was like, you know, I was like seeing, like, I saw like Bernie, like what is it? it was Mark Rebo with Bernie Worrell in his band at CBGB's, you know, yeah. and, and like this kind of mixture of like jazz and funk. I mean, again, it kind of goes back straight to what we're talking about with the tar babies. Right. It's like, so man, it's, it's like a full circle thing because like, you know, and then, then later on I went on to, you know, I, I, I still played sax, but I, I just didn't, I don't know. I just have a weird thing. Like I always have this thing of like, I'm either this or I'm that, right. You know? And and what I love again with the, when I hear the, the Tarbase record, I was I didn't know better. I was just like everything. whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like I mean, just whatever the hell you want, you know. Which which is what I think you're supposed to do. And you know, but in, since that time, you know, one point uh, early two thousands, I I got a gig playing in uh, uh, the Broadway show Fela. Okay, about about you know Fela Kuti, and mm -hmm. you know I did like 150 shows, you know, as the lead sax, you know, the lead sax player, like the Fela sax part, right. And that was a band called Antibalas, um, okay. yep. were the guys that, you know, were sort of behind that, you know, Antibalas is the premier, I think premier Af Afrobeat band. You're talking uh, Antibalas Orchestra. Yes. Yeah, I yes. know them. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so that just, again, that just came out of the blue. Like I was, I went and sat in somewhere one night with a friend of mine and like the music director, you know, saw me and. I got a chance to sub on that show. And then I ended up doing like 150 of those shows, you wow. know, all of a sudden I was like a sax player again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Around that time I started playing with uh, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, mm -hmm. you know, through that connection. Cause that, those bands are very connected Antibalas, And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in fact, they were the same band, uh, Sharon, the Dap Kings and Antibalas were all in the same band and they kind of split off. Right. Yep. And then I ended up, uh, touring with Charles Bradley for a year and a half. Mm great soul singer charles bradley and i that was the first time first and only time i've been part of something that where i got to see it go like 
you know, we play in Paris for 400 people and then like the next month go back and play for a thousand people, you know, right. really saw the, you know, and I, and I, I was, you know, unceremoniously kicked out of the band at one point, but, but that's okay. Um, I got to see the beginning of his explosion, you know, mm -hmm. and, and he continued to explode, you know, well beyond when I left the band, you know, and then now it's like, what the hell am I doing? I don't know. I, I guess, I guess. You know, this is like a sign for me, like the, the fact that we get to talk about this. I still I, I, I still want to create, you know, like I want to it's like you're always trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. You know, the Garden of Eden is the Garden of Eden is, is innocence before knowledge. All the things I've done, all the things that I've loved, all the music I've loved, you know, the experimental thing. You know, when I when I left the Tar Babies and moved to Milwaukee, that was a big thing because Madison was like, for me, even now, Madison represents kind of like freedom and liberalism and, you know, university and philosophy. And Milwaukee was like old school, like Milwaukee was like a black jazz scene. You understand? Like there was like the lounges, like back in the days, there was the lounges, you know, mm -hmm. I got exposed to a whole nother like serious, you know, and I'm not putting it down or putting it up, but like a serious I would say a black, the black tradition of jazz, the inner city, you know, the, the Cleveland, you know, the Milwaukee, the Indianapolis, I mean, all these towns around the country, you know, where, where there's, you know what I mean? Like the Oregon trio vibe, you know what I'm saying? Yep. And that was awesome, but it also really, it damaged me in some ways artistically because coming from that, like anything goes to like, okay, now we got to study the traditions, you know? Right. And, and so I guess what I'm trying to tell you is that at this point, I'm hoping that this uh, this podcast and I, and I believe it is a sign from the universe, which is like, you know, something that's very dear to my heart, which is this this music and this period, something that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, that's 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 my purpose is to like tap into that, you know, and it's hard to do, man. It's hard to do after you've been doing this, you know, up and down, struggling, trying to make a living. You know, I've, I've worked all kinds of jobs, you know, I've, I've, I've had years where all I did is play music, but then I've had to have jobs, you know, I'm, you know what I mean? Like, you know how it is, right? It's like, yeah. so I don't know if any of this makes sense, you know? Yeah, I, it totally does. And well, I can tell you, you know, I've heard you mention a few times, you know, I'm not sure who will hear this or who will care. I can tell you there's Tar Babies fans out there and they're going to be really happy to hear from you. Well, I, I just want, listen, I just want to like, you know, it, it would warm my heart to hear from any of these folks. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, the other thing I have to say is like, I wish that this stuff was more available. Like, I don't feel like it's on Spotify or anything. No, no, it's stuff some like of that. it is, some of it's pretty hard to find. And unfortunately, Tar Babies are, are one of those bands. You can, it's on YouTube and stuff, but. Yeah, I wish uh, it was more available. Yeah, I wish, I wish it was too. Yeah. Is there somewhere people can find you? Or are you on Facebook? Oh man. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I don't have my thing together. I don't have my website thing together. But um, you can find me. On, you can find me on Facebook. You could Google my name, Tony Jarvis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it'll, you'll find me. You'll find me out there. Um, oh, um, I have a new band. It's called End to the Power. Okay. And uh, we just finished. We just uh, we just finished a record uh, this year. And I'm pretty psyched on it. It's it's actually it's instrumental music. It's experimental yet groovy. It's like we call it like Afrobeat meets. Uh, Steve Reich. Mm, sounds it, awesome. I, I made the music. My my main collaborator, his name is Blake Lay, and he he works on all of David Simon's uh, television shows. Mm -hmm. David Simon did The Wire and Treme and all these things. Yep. 
and so he's been his music supervisor for forever oh. and he you know does a lot of film music as well and we created this music in the way that that you know it should be done was we just got together and just made some stuff and uh, i'm actually really really proud of that record and you know again it's just we just kind of released it ourselves um i think people would really like it you know if they heard it is it on Bandcamp or anything like yes, that? Yes, it's on Bandcamp. Yeah. N to the power, uh, n to the power dot com, and that's just n t o t h e power dot com. Yeah. And the record's called Autogenesis. Awesome. And um, yeah, I would love people to check that out, man. Yeah, well, I I will be as soon as I'm done talking to you. <laughs> Sounds great. If any, I mean, if anybody you know wants to reach out, or you know, they if they reach out to you. You know, please send them. Please send them my way. You know, however, however that can happen. Yeah, I, I will. Tony, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, like I said, you're you, you've inspired me. And uh, keep doing the, the the good work you're doing, man. Yeah, same to you. Keep playing, man. Love to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on. You know what? Like so much of. Tony's comments uh, near the end were talking about how he's inspired by uh, <laughs> by by us uh, showing some interest, which I mean, I'm I'm super grateful for. You know, there's the the feedback like that. You know, obviously helps us keep on keeping on here. Um, it's inspiring to me to keep doing the show. That's kind of a, a quick thought after listening to that interview. The other thing, though that I really liked about that interview was Tony's description of going to like his first punk rock gig. And yeah. a lot of, a lot of punk rock podcasts, that's part of their structure in terms of how they frame the episode, like uh, turned out a punk or even Watts show talks about like, what's your first exposure to music? Like kind of a, a same set of questions. Yeah. But I don't know if I've ever asked you, What's your first punk rock show? Pretty sure we have talked about this on the show. Have we? It, yeah. Okay, well, when? Which decade? Uh, <laughs> late 80s DOA. Was it? Where? Yeah. Was it the RCAF? Was it that one? Maybe. With Mystery Machine? Might have been, yeah. Well, you don't even, you don't remember the venue? Was it? A... Pretty sure that's where it was, yeah. It was a all-ages hall rental. Like, uh, was it up by the airport, that one? I think so, I think so yeah. So that's Feedbag, Mystery Machine, and DOA. I was at that show. Yeah. Yeah. My first one was uh, upstairs at the university, Pork Sword and the Hanson Brothers. Nice. That was my first show. And then yeah. uh, like six weeks later, I played the next show that I was at, <laughs> opening up for the Smalls. Nice. So, But the thing to tie both of those stories back to Tony is... He's absolutely right when he talks about how going to your first show when you're whatever, 13, 14, 15, really young, how it, you know, if you're wired a certain way, it becomes part of your DNA for the rest of your life, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was a lifelong DOA fan immediately, like after like two songs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. I remember that hall too. It's one of those old halls that they had, um, the floor, the wooden floor, it's actually resting on old tires because it's a dance floor. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I don't, I barely remember anything about the show. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's because it's so long ago, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what about this club though, Merlin's Club in Madison? Pretty far out. There needs to be a book or a documentary on that one, right? Yeah. Hey, uh, check out Tony's band, End to the Power. That record, Autogenesis, that's up on Spotify. That's really good. It's cool, hey? Yeah. Yeah, people should definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah, like you mentioned, like this is a Tony record for sure. And I like I totally prefer this album. Really? To the to the other tar baby stuff. To we've fried heard. milk? Oh yeah. Oh no way. Yeah. I like it. I mean I'm I was grooving to it all week. I was I was totally feeling it. And you know what else I love too is when Tony was you're going through the tracks and he'd mention the name the title of a song and he'd be like, Oh yeah, that's one he's just like he remembers and it's because dang the melodies are super catchy and a lot of it is due to tony's horn right yeah talking to tony really reminded me of when we talked to tim harding just really has a lot of reverence for this period of time in his life and yeah his his bandmates too yeah you know uh, is alex totino from dostaman is he in new york i think so yeah i think so hey I, I kept on thinking about, uh, like, at the end of the interview where Tony's talking about, you know, getting out and playing more. That's similar to what Alex Totino was saying, too. Alex and Tony should start up a band, man. There you go. Yeah, let's, that'd be good. Let's do it. We'll be like the uh, the SST alum matchmakers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, could, I could live with that as a legacy. Yeah, man. Yeah. Should we get into these tracks? Yeah. History Lesson, Part 2. Hey, real quick, I'm going to give you a spiel on this because it's uh, the Spaceman has given a total shout-out to Tony as well on this one. He says, from the SST catalog, Tar Babies, no contest. It is no contest when Madison's Tar Babies take their hyperdrive hunger to the mat. On their second SST release, the Tar Babies have added a man who plays sax and killer bomb-laden guitar, and the results are 10 new tar tunes. Includes Wisdom Drill, LP, cassette, and CD. Wisdom Drill must have been identified as, like, you know, the best track, I guess, or yeah. maybe radio-friendly, I don't know. It's always funny when SST singles out a song. It's always the weirdest song you would not. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the one that would have went on No Age, Volume yeah. 2, maybe. yeah. It's weird. Yeah, so this was released on LP, CD, and cassette, 1988. Yeah, mine is a totally thrashed, cut-out radio station copy. C-H-R-Y, York University, 105.5 FM. <laughs> I probably paid, you know, three or four bucks for this, and I'm happy to have it. I even like it when they scratch in the radio station stuff in it and you save it from the bin, you know? Yeah. Uh, track one, side one, Lay of the Law. I mentioned this in, in the interview, but there's Bucky with those Hendrix chords and, and the tone right out of the gate. Pretty sure Bucky played a Strat. Sure sounds like it anyways. Yeah, what else could it be? It sounds yeah. so Strat. It's it's single coil all the way. The sax is such a huge standout, though. Great yeah. bebop, funky lines from Tony. Yeah, I like when the sax doubles the bass line. Mm. Yeah. Agreed. Great, great sax solo from Tony in the midsection. Some popping from Robin. Some weird time signature stuff. Uh, 
you can hear Tony doing that. His space is the place falsetto at the end of the song, which mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have picked out if he wouldn't have mentioned it. Track two, Lupe. No surprise, I love Bucky's solo. Uh, cool midsection with the horns and guitar doubling each other. Some killy, killer jazzy flourishes on the drums from Dan Bitney. Some flute too? Yep. What kind of solo would you call this, Brent? Probably a fret melter. Nice. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Borderline anyways. Yeah. Track three, Link in the Chain. Tony mentions this this one in the interview that he brought this in and he also does vocals on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and Bucky playing really cool together, uh, both on guitar, kind of like a funky counter groove. His vocals are good. Uh, you can hear that Prince influence that he mentions in the interview. Yeah. All four of these dudes had serious chops, man. Dan Bitney is right in the pocket, as they say. He's not so busy that he doesn't lose the groove. Like, there's a lot of a lot of finesse and flourishing. This one too, he starts like whipping out the rototoms and splash cymbals and stuff on this record. And it, it all hangs together. Yeah. It, it's cool how each song has these parts in the middle where they, and this one, this one's a good one. They kind of lock into this stone groove. It, this is the longest track too, six and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Straight into the shortest track, actualizing yeah. just over a minute long. Tony on keys on this one. Yeah, it's a slower jam, an instro, just like, what is it, a minute and 14, I think, with some funky bass popping, too. Yep. It's not it's not essential on the record, but it's I, I kind of thought of it as a bit of an interlude in between Link and the Chain and Clean Living. Think of it that way. Yeah. Clean Living is just okay for me. Probably the weakest track on, probably maybe the weakest track on side one. It's just okay. Yeah, it's another slower jam that... I can tell from the sequencing, you, you mentioned it in the interview with Tony, the sequencing, it's intentional. I would put Clean Living at the end of side one. It makes sense. Yeah. Side two, though, just comes out swinging with Catch My Fall. Side two of this record is where things really get gnarly. I think Tony calls this one one of his faves on the record, and it's definitely a highlight. He's just yeah. going off on this one. The whole band is actually... Yeah, the sax is a standout for sure. Great guitar solo. I even love like the just the way that the song starts. That yeah. that guitar riff is uh it's very it's very unique and uh it's really signaling like something different happening in the record, a shift in the record. I I have to admit like and this is probably an odd omission for me because I feel like I should know Tortoise better than I do. Oh, yeah. But I wonder if Dan gets to use these chops in Tortoise. I need to get into Tortoise, I think. Tortoise is not as funky. Yeah. You have some of their records, I'm assuming? I do. I Again, like, I have not been a a completist or a deep diver. Um, there is a Tortoise connection with King Kong, and I know King Kong from Homestead better. Hmm. Is it Dan? I can't remember. I don't know. I'm going to check out some Tortoise, though. Yeah. Okay, track two is Wisdom Drill, another of Tony's songs. Definite Minutemen Firehose vibe for me on this one. It's got like a Caribbean type of feel. Splash cymbals, rototoms. That's the Firehose callback that I pick out for sure. Yeah, for sure. Another great solo from Tony. Back-to-back killer instros on the record. Mm -hmm. Track three, Cure It All. I'm assuming this is Bucky on vocals. Definite Hendrix vibe on this one. 
it's a cool track kind of i don't know it's hard to follow two back-to-back barnstorming instros for me yeah they're they kind of for the second half of side two they do start kind of blending together a bit yeah track four blood onion kind of this accelerating riff on the sax some flute also yeah when it dips down into the mellower part this one's all tony Mm -hmm. agreed and then it ends on kind of this laid-back groove real time uh it's tony reciting a poem there's some samples taken off a tv i think tony says from that was in the studio robin just slapping up a storm yeah it starts with some serious thumping off the off the hop hey yeah that's it that's the record like i said i totally prefer this over fried milk we've got one more to come too on episode 236 yeah that's a fair ways out yeah it does say ryan on the back of the lp special thanks to bob wasserman and according to discogs i don't think it says this on the lp but according to discogs he's uncredited on all of the side one tracks with effects bob okay bob was in a milwaukee band called hollywood autopsy Hmm, that's a good name yeah how about that artwork though yeah the cover artwork is great again mine has got you know a few scratches i've tried to clean it up over the years hopefully it won't show up too much in the (laughs) the photos on instagram but uh it works a bit better that cover on the cassette because it's just the painting yeah like for the lp they kind of had to do the instagram thing where they they add bars to the top and bottom to because it's a rectangular shaped painting yeah it's good though i like it it looks like a crowd almost i don't know but what about the colors they use to frame it? it it's, the teal? Yeah, it's really catches your eye, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, the teal works a bit better on the back, actually, with the contrasting against all the handwritten lyrics and the doodles. How about Tony talking about how he was intimidated by Naomi Peterson? Yeah. Just, this, just for being so worldly. Yeah, well, I mean... After you've been taking pictures of, you know, Black Flag and the Minutemen for however many years and everyone else in L.A. Yeah. Uh, this is just another day at the office to take photos of the Tar Babies. And who are the Tar Babies yeah. to Naomi? Oh, yeah, they put out a record a while back. Okay, yeah. moving on. Yeah, uh, Robin sent me some outtakes, some of Naomi's outtakes. So watch for oh, those. Oh, no way. Yeah, watch for those this week. Awesome. Uh, there's some great doodles on the back. Yeah some uh you know like musical notes that look like they're kind of ready ready for a rumble i guess some birds some fish the uh, a doodle of like kind of the map of the usa with a radio tower out the middle which i assume is madison also a clock where the hands of the clock is some like running dude and some of these little doodles find their way onto the uh the label on the actual record itself. Yeah. But no dead wax, hmm. unfortunately. The end of an era, man. Well, we, we shall see. Like I said, I'm still holding out hope for some of the uh, the new Alliance represses. Yeah. All right, so ballot result. Ballot result. What do you think, man? My faves were Lay of the Law, Link in the Chain, Catch My Fall, Wisdom Drill, and Blood Onion. Hmm. Lay of the Law is pretty sweet, too. Yeah, it is. It's got a wicked 
wicked socks line from Tony. I'd go with that one or catch my fall. Let's go with lay of the law. All right. It's it's catchy. It's the one I you know. <laughs> yeah, I it's like a good that. one. Yeah, it's good. Right on. Thanks to Tony Jarvis for coming on the show and thanks to Robin Davies for helping set it up. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Next week it's SST 170, the paper bag album, A Land Without Fences. And we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, Greg Siegel's on the show. Nice. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.